Hello and welcome to the Nursing Standard podcast. I'm Sophie Blakemore, editor of Emergency Nurse and Nursing Management Journals here at RCNI. This episode is all about sepsis, the signs to watch out for and how to respond, and what the guidelines say about how and when to treat a patient with suspected sepsis. Because, as we will discuss later on, the guidance from the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence around sepsis is currently under review. Joining me today to share her expertise on the topic is Sean Anakin. Sean is Deteriorating Patient Lead at the Dudley Group NHS Foundation Trust. And before that, she was a sepsis nurse practitioner and resuscitation officer. She also recently authored a peer-reviewed article on the Sepsis 6, which was published in Emergency Nurse late last year. Hi, Sean. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Sophie. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, it's great to have you here. Thank you for joining us. I was actually born not too far away from where you are now in Warsaw Manor Hospital. And I always kind of feel a natural affinity with fellow West Midlanders. It kind of harks back to my roots. So it's lovely to have you on. <laughs> now, you're a real expert on this subject um, of sepsis. But I think it would be good to start with a straightforward question for listeners who may be new to nursing. What is sepsis? So sepsis has been defined um, multiple times over the years, and we're currently working on the sepsis 3 definition, which was defined in 2016. And that works as sepsis is characterised by a life-threatening organ dysfunction due to a dysregulated host response to infection. That's quite a mouthful, to be fair. Effectively, it's thinking about the fact that it's a life-threatening condition that arises when the body's normal response to an infection actually injures its own tissues and organs. And what are the signs and symptoms that nurses need to watch out for of sepsis in patients? So effectively, you can't have sepsis without an infection in the, in the first place. So if we use the National Early Warning Score, and we look at the news two signs that leads us into an ABCD assessment of our patient and it leads us to actually assess the the organ function of the patient just by naturally recording each parts of those observations so if we then have a patient who is showing abnormal signs as part of that news two and they have some kind of infection or we suspect that there is an infection then we should also be suspecting that this could be sepsis and just asking that question, could this be sepsis? Not everybody that triggers on news 2 will trigger because of sepsis, but it's just thinking about it in, in every patient and therefore we won't miss them if that's the case. In terms of kind of physical symptoms like a fever, that seems to be something that as kind of, you know, a lay person and a parent, you're told to look out for because that can be a sign of sepsis. I mean, are there any kind of physical symptoms like that that nurses need to watch out for before they do the news too? So effectively, a fever doesn't always show up for patients who have sepsis, because if you think about our own um, natural response with the temperature, your temperature will have a little peak through the day and then have a trough as well. So we don't have a constant temperature, if you, even if you do have one at some point. So it's looking for other signs of infection. It's looking for other signs of that patient just being unwell. So it might be that you actually walk into the room and you look at them and you think, oh, they, they look a bit unwell. And that leads you to do a set of vital signs and use two score on them. It might be that they've sort of shown that they're, they're just not quite their normal self. They're maybe a little bit confused or they're looking a little bit grey or a bit clammy, something like that. So 
any kind of symptom that sort of suggests that that patient might not be 100% should lead us to do a news two set of observations. And then working upon that, if we look briefly at the, the scores that have hit the single triggers of three, a lot of them lead us to look at organ dysfunction because we look at the heart rate. Are they particularly tachycardic? We'll look at the blood pressure. Has that dropped? We might think about their urine output as well. So it's thinking about all sorts of bits that are parts of the news too, but then also thinking about how that patient is. Are they still passing urine? Somebody that hasn't passed urine in 18 hours is somebody that we should be concerned about unless that's normal for them. Have they got skin changes where they're looking mottled or grey or some kind of rash that leads us to be concerned about them with that as well? And often the one that people really forget about is the patient absolutely feeling and voicing that opinion that they have an impending sense of doom or they really feel like they, they might die. They have an urge to sort of say goodbye to loved ones and things like that. And that's one that I'm sure every nurse has actually heard a patient sort of say, and you sort of go, oh, not on my shift. But it's actually listening to that and absorbing that as well. And, and what should a nurse do if they suspect sepsis in a patient? I mean, you, you've already touched on this with the News 2 score, I know, but, um, you know, what action should they take? What, should they, what steps should they take if they do suspect sepsis? The first thing you want to do with any deteriorating patient is to assess them and get a baseline set of observations. And that's where early warning scores are absolutely brilliant for this, because hopefully this isn't the first time you've seen your patient if they're on the ward. So you'll have a previous set of vital signs to compare against. But actually, this might be the first time you've seen them because you might work in the emergency department. So it gives us a baseline against what is typically normal, because we understand that most patients aren't textbook. There's a lot of research gone into doing um, news and then expanding that to news too. And it's looking at guidance of what is typically normal. And it gives us a set of scores from that. So effectively, it leads us into an ABCD assessment. Obviously, speaking to your patient is going to assess their airway. And actually, there's nothing news too that assesses the airway because you should be introducing yourself and getting a response back and actually assessing the airway at that particular point. Clearly, if you've got an airway issue, you're going to call for urgent help before you assess the rest of it. But then the news too will take us down through breathing and circulation assessments. And it's making sure that we actually do a full minute of the respiratory rate, for example, because the respiratory signs are the first sign that your body uses to compensate. So if somebody's unwell, it's the respiratory rate that will change first and it can change quickly. So it's really, really important that we actually take a, an accurate reading of that and record it manually over a full 60 seconds, because it's not just the number, it's the pattern and whether that breathing looks effective for that patient and the work of breathing. Looking at the saturations, it's looking then at their cardiovascular size. So thinking about the capillary refill, is it less than two seconds, which is what we would hope for? If it's greater than that, then we've got some kind of cardiovascular compromise, which should also show up with that manual pulse that you're going to do over a full minute and also blood pressure. And it's pulling all of these together and then moving on to D, which would look at our conscious level. And that's where we use a really quick, simple sign. And we use the AVPU, which a few years ago added in new confusion into that. So pretty much anything that isn't alert from your AVPU 
is going to score you a single trigger of three. So that new confusion is something that we should be alarmed about. And so is a patient that's only responding to our voice or to pain or is completely unresponsive. So all of those will score a single trigger of three. So any altered change in mental state, basically, from that point of view. Obviously, looking at their blood sugars as well, because that could be the reason why they've got an altered mental state. And then it's thinking when we get to E for exposure. I like to think of E as everything else. It's not just exposing the patient, looking for that skin colour, looking for injuries, fluid loss and things like that. But actually, it's examining everything else that might be brought in. So are they on any drugs? Have they had chemotherapy in the last six weeks, for example, because that gives me an immediate red flag for sepsis from that point of view. Do they have any other sort of kind of um, signs for organ dysfunction that I can see? So their extremities are sort of really pale, mottled, very cold. Anything there basically within that A to E, you can expand it a lot bigger than just what you chart down for news too. If I've then got a score that's triggering, so um, the NICE guidance, we're looking at a score of five or six, or basically adding up the amalgamated score from each of those seven parts of news too, then we need to be using some kind of sepsis screening tool and deciding whether we have any signs of infection. At this point, you don't need a confirmed infection. So if your patient is coughing and spluttering and they've got bright green sputum, you're not necessarily going to wait for that sputum sample to come back from the labs to go, they've got a chest infection. You know you've got enough signs there that you can suspect that they might have a chest infection and you would actually go, yes, there's signs of infection and therefore we want to start the sepsis six. And that's the hard one for nurses. It's, it's actually going could there be an infection? That can be a really hard one to define. And in some trusts, the doctors will make that decision. And in other trusts, the nursing staff will make that decision. And that does vary around the country. And that can make a big impact on the timeliness of the sepsis six. OK, actually thought to mention there, we were talking about news too. I'm not sure whether we explain that acronym for, for any nursing students or newly qualified nurses who might be listening, but it's the National Early Warning School isn't it? And it's the second kind of incarnation of that. But also then I was going to ask, you know, what is the sepsis six and how do you use it? How does it work? So effectively, you'll probably start with some kind of screening tool, which will be based on that unwell patient. So relative concern, um, you'll use to score from that early warning score and then asking yourself the question, could there be an infection? Once you've got to the end of that and you're going, yes, we have somebody who's triggered and yes, there's signs of infection. Then we're going to suspect sepsis and that gives us a sort of a time zero if you like in in the care that we need and we have a sort of a one hour bundle of what we would really like to achieve within that next hour so taking time zero is that point of deterioration we need to make sure that we've got a senior clinician attending within that hour and part of that is because some of those signs where your patient has triggered could be caused by something else so although you've potentially got infection and you've got a trigger it doesn't necessarily mean that that patient has sepsis so by making sure we have a senior clinician attending we can use and draw on their experience and their clinical knowledge to decide whether we are treating for sepsis or whether maybe we're treating for heart failure for example and nice guidance define us a senior clinician as an st3 or above so you're looking at sort of registrar level in in the medical terms but also it could be somebody um, it could be a senior nurse with antimicrobial prescribing abilities so 
someone who had a job role to, like mine as a sepsis nurse practitioner, as a non-medical prescriber, I could be that senior clinician and I could prescribe some antibiotics from that point of view. So it's making sure that we have that person with experience attending. It's making sure we optimise their oxygenation. So we need to give oxygen if required. And everything in emergency sort of care and recess sort of guidance will tell us to start with high flow oxygen. Because anybody can start high flow oxygen through a non-rebreathe mask. You don't need a prescription for that, but you do need a prescription for anything less because your high flow oxygen through a non-rebreathe is an emergency response. So as I say, that doesn't need a prescription and you can do that whilst you're waiting for your senior clinician to attend. You may not need to stay on that 15 litres, but once your clinician is there, they can prescribe something lower at the appropriate rate to keep the SATs to 94 to 98%. Clearly, if your patient's at risk of hypercapnia, then they may well be on the alternative gale for saturations, which is defined within the news 2 guidance as well. And you'd be aiming for 88 to 92% with them. However, if they need oxygen, we shouldn't be worried about giving them oxygen, even if we're worried that they might have COPD, because hypoxia is going to kill them before hypercapnia, hypercarbia does. So it's a slow process of that CO2 building up, and it's much safer to start the high flow oxygen and wean it down once that senior clinician is there, if, if that's what's needed for that patient. Whilst we're waiting for them attend, to attend as well, if we've got the skills to do so, we really want to send a full set of bloods need to make sure that we've got those blood cultures going off and although most blood cultures are going to take 48 hours for a result we're far safer and far better getting things getting a sample out there before we get the antibiotics in if that's possible because in 48 hours time when it does grow anything we can make sure that we're on the right antibiotics so if we've started with broad spectrum antibiotics we can then narrow them down to the specific infection but we don't just want to send cultures. We want to send some things that will give us some quicker answers. So I would always advocate that you send what your full profile would be within your trust. And as long as that contains a set of use and ease and full blood count and some clotting, and it's making sure that you've got a lactate coming back as well and a CRP, then that would be most things that, that a full profile would contain. But they take a few hours to come back. So there is one thing that we can do in a lot of trusts that will give us a much quicker response as well. If we have the ability to take venous bloods, we can usually take a venous blood gas as well. So as part of taking that sample with the cultures and the blood bottles, if we have an arterial blood gas syringe and attach that to the venous blood, it has a little bit of heparin within there. And then we can actually pop that venous blood through the blood gas machine as well, because not everybody has the skills to do an arterial blood gas. But if you have the skills to take venous bloods, then that, that gets you that quick answer as well. I always think when we think about cultures, we think very quickly about blood cultures and we get really good at sending those bloods and the blood cultures. And we don't necessarily think whether we need other cultures. So as part of that sepsis six thinking cultures, think about is there any other type of culture that is appropriate to this patient. So alluding back to that patient with the green sputum, I would definitely want a sample of that going off. If they've got a wound, I'd want a swab of that going off. It might be a urine sample. It may even be that the medics need to do a lumbar puncture or something like that. Thinking about your recently pregnant lady, 
do they need to send a little sample of the milk off, for example, with mastitis is quite a, a big cause of sepsis, or it may even need a, a high vaginal swab post-birth. So it's thinking outside the box a little bit as well as are there any other cultures I need to be sending? Then probably um, the most important one that most people are aware of is getting the antibiotics in. So clearly once we've got the bloods taken and things, we're hopefully got IV access at this point. And that's certainly something that can be done whilst you're waiting for your doctors to arrive. And you do generally then need to wait for that senior clinician to prescribe your IV antibiotics. But they should be thinking about the source control in there. And it's quite possible that they'll go with something very broad spectrum to start with and then narrow it down over the next 24, 48 hours to something a bit more specific once they've got indication of where the source is. So we've optimised the oxygenation. We've sent cultures and everything. We're thinking about prescribing antibiotics once we've got that senior clinician. And we need to think about optimising that cardiovascular system. And that's generally going to need IV fluid boluses. So we would generally go with the fact that most people could cope with a 500 mil bolus. If they've got any kind of heart failure, you may make a smaller bolus to start with. But generally, the senior clinician is probably going to prescribe sort of divided doses of fluids. And it's using the lactate result to actually guide for therapy. We're really good at having crispy patients or drowned patients of basically giving too much fluid or not enough fluid. So we should guide our fluid boluses based upon the response and our best way of actually doing that is to monitor that patient which is the sixth part of the sepsis six and that's doing serial lactates it's monitoring the the urine output which might need a, a urinary catheter in some stages but certainly needs a proper fluid balance chart with a decent input and output documented on there and then it's using news too as well so using the royal college of physician guidance on the timings. So if they're scoring seven or above, then actually they should be on continuous monitoring and you should be charting those scores down at least every half hour. If they're scoring a five or six, we should be repeating the vital signs every hour. And actually, if they've got a single trigger of three, that also requires repeating the vital signs every hour, pretty much. So it's using that news too to guide our, our monitoring as well. And effectively, that's what the sepsis six involves. It has changed over the years because people used to think of it as three things in and three things out. And it changed to bring that senior clinician in and that senior clinician review in, which has always been there in the paediatric sepsis six. But it's just been there in the background in the adult one. And it sort of came a bit more prominent in 2019 when the UK Sepsis Trust built it into their screening tool as the first part of the sepsis six at that point. And I think probably there's a lot of trusts out there that are still working on the three things in and the three things out rather than this new sepsis six. So that might be a surprise to people to hear that the senior review is the first thing of that six. Oh, that's a really comprehensive answer. Thanks, Sean. I must admit that was news to me about mastitis being a big cause of sepsis. I hadn't heard that before. It's really interesting. And you mentioned in there about giving IV antibiotics. That's one of the main main responses and point four of the of the sepsis six tool so it brings us around nicely to the review of the nice guidance on the treatment of sepsis which is currently being reviewed can you just briefly explain what the existing guidance is and why it's being reviewed at the moment yeah so 
most people probably have heard of the NICE Guidance 51, came out in 2016, following the, the sepsis 3 definition, and that gave us a high risk criteria, which led us to, if our patients had any of the high risk criteria, then we needed to treat them within an hour with the sepsis 6. Now, the high risk criteria, if you're familiar with UK Sepsis Trust, were the red flag sepsis signs, exactly the same signs, just slightly different terminology for the same thing. So some people will say one thing, some people will say the other, depending on what they're used to working on. In May last year, the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges released a statement on antimicrobial prescribing in sepsis. And within their statement, they've reviewed exactly the same set of data and evidence that was used to create the NICE guidance. However, they've come up with a slightly different view on that evidence. So currently, if you use the NICE guidance, if you have a patient who scores five or six or above, basically, so anything scoring five or above on news two, then you are going to screen for sepsis. If there's signs of infection, then you're going to start the sepsis six. With the academy guidance, they've got a slightly different view on it. So if you screened the same start, so you had somebody scoring a five or a six and they had signs of infection, then effectively you're then going to think about some extra bits because instead of saying everybody needs treating within the hour, the academy is saying that actually if the news is five or six and they don't have any adverse signs, then you might have some extra time available to you where you could wait before prescribing antibiotics. But they do still agree that anybody with a news two of seven or above should be treated within the hour. So that creates a little bit of confusion out there effectively of, of what you should and shouldn't be doing within the hour. And with the academy guidelines, all of the other five should still be done sort of immediately and within the hour. And it's just giving that senior clinician a little bit of time to decide if they want to prescribe the IV antibiotics, whether this is sepsis, whether they need to wait for blood results to come back, for example, because you're not going to get your blood cultures back because they're going to take 48 hours and any other cultures are going to do something similar. So it's only probably blood results that you might get back in that time. It might give you time to actually do a scan if they needed to go through the CT scan, for example, if you were worried that it could be peritonitis and they wanted a CT scan first to see if there was any other cause. That's the only sort of things that you might get back within that three hours. So the adverse signs you're looking at, if your patient's scoring a five or a six and you're working to the academy guidelines, they also want to know is the lactate greater than two? or have the patient had chemotherapy within the last six weeks, or have you got any other organ failure? So if they've got an AKI, for example, but they also say if the patient looks extremely unwell or if they're actively deteriorating, if you've got any of those adverse signs, you should still treat within the hour exactly the same as you do at the moment within the NICE guidance. So because the Academy has created this unsettlement, if you like, across the across the nation, by putting that sort of idea out there, then they have invited NICE to review their guidance as well to see whether they agree with that time frame. So that's effectively why NICE guidance is being reviewed at the moment. And hopefully we should hear something later on in the year to whether 
they're going to adapt to be exactly the same as the academy or whether they're going to stay stay the same. Yeah, I think it's summertime. Nice has said that there should be some updated guidance published, so I'll have to watch out for that. So just to recap, the current NICE guidance is to give antibiotics within one hour to patients with a News 2 score of five and above. But the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges guidance, which came out in May last year, 2022, allows for extra time for test results to come back. So patients with a News 2 score of five and six with no adverse features, as you mentioned, can receive antibiotics within three hours. Is that right? Yes. It sounds quite potentially confusing for nurses and for trusts to have these two streams of guidance out there with slightly conflicting advice when it comes to administering IV antibiotics. How have trusts worked with that and how how have nurses been working with that as far as you're aware? Um, it, it can be quite tricky because if you are aiming to do everything within the hour then and you're caring for a patient, you're probably going to be doing it yourself or you're making sure that it's certainly done within your shift before you've got, gone off duty. If you're waiting for one thing to happen within three hours, while you're busy, that three hours can disappear. Time can disappear when you're on a shift. You can sort of lose track of, hang on, when did I bleep somebody? And before you know it, that three hours could be four or, or five. So we certainly within our trust are still pushing for the faster side of that. Like, do you know what? If you aim for your decision as soon as possible within the hour, even if they meet that criteria of having three hours, what we're trying to sort of say to the medics who'll be prescribing, what are you going to get back within that three hours that could give you that extra information that we don't have? And sometimes it is a scan and that is a definite result back. But if it's bloods, they're probably not going to change their mind to which antibiotics they're going to prescribe anyway. So if that's the case, we're asking them to just carry on and prescribe them so that we can give them as soon as possible. And rather than waiting for that full three hours, if that makes sense. Certainly within my trust, we have made the decision to switch to the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges guidelines. So we are working across two sets of knowledge and trying to bring in this new concept, but it's still creating the urgency in it because that's what we really don't want to lose. And I think that's the difficulty that there is on, on the shop floor. The guidance at the moment, I think, can be confusing, but as long as the trust has a decision that they are following one or the other, then I think they're able to justify to CQC that they have stuck with NICE guidance or they're able to justify they've gone with the Academy of Medical Rural Colleges, then, then that's certainly the way to go. And there's resources out there for both. So certainly if you visit the UK Sepsis Trust website, they've rewritten their sepsis manual. It's now got the sixth edition and there's two versions of it. So if you work for the Academy's guidelines, you can download the, the version all on the Academy's guidelines. If you work with the NICE guidelines, you can download the version based on the NICE guidelines. And they've done the screening tools as well. So they would advocate, as would the Sepsis Practitioner Forum, that you follow one or the other. It doesn't really matter which, as long as you, you're on some kind of guidelines and then your trust can justify which way you've jumped from that point of view. That's great. That's really 
helpful that the UK Sepsis Trust has done that. So there's these two choices of screening tools, depending on which guidance the trust is following for nurses to kind of help them in their decision making. Yeah, and they're really, really good. They're really comprehensive to follow through. So I would certainly advocate if you've not seen them, just downloading them because they are they are free. So they can create quite a nice reference tool as well. And certainly the, the manual as well. The fact that you can download an electronic copy, a really good reference tool to be able to improve your own knowledge from that point of view. Yeah, that's great. And it must be really helpful for nurses to know that there is this guidance there and this kind of this tool there that can that can help them and, and hopefully clear up the confusion for them. What do you think is behind this change from one hour to three hours that the AMRC have put in place and that NICE is obviously considering? Is it to do with antimicrobial resistance? That's some of the kind of rumours that I've been hearing that it, it is based around not giving antibiotics unnecessarily to too many people. Is that fair, do you think? Yeah, I think we've got to we've got to start thinking um, more proactively about safeguarding antibiotics for, for our future, because the way that we are dishing them out at the moment is suggesting that there are resistances in different types in a lot of people. What you can find is that there's evidence out there that although we are maybe giving more antibiotics in the ED for people coming in through the front door with suspected sepsis, if you look at trusts as a whole and not just look at their sepsis codes, but look at their infection codes, you'll probably find that there hasn't been a massive increase in antibiotics across the whole trust. There's a lot of evidence to suggest that effectively from NHS England and from a huge study within New York and also I think Ireland was the other place that they, they've got some evidence on this, that although they are treating sepsis more, they haven't actually increased the amount of usage in IV antibiotics because what we're also doing is we're viewing them quicker. So we should hopefully be switching from IV to oral much quicker if we're doing so the guidance would be 24 hour reviews, certainly by 48 hours, you want to be stopping those IV antibiotics if you haven't got any positive culture results. So it's coming off the broad spectrum antibiotics as soon as possible, as soon as we know what that source is and having proper source control measures in place, which could be surgery um, and then the specific antibiotics for that infection. So we are getting better at that. So as a result, we're not really using more antibiotics everywhere but we are using more antibiotics at the front door but from the general NHS England guidance across the whole trust and infection as a whole the antibiotic usage is still much the same so if we think of it like that what we're obviously doing is starting them quickly but then getting the right treatment and stopping them quickly as well. And that's what we've got to do to maintain antimicrobial stewardship, really. That's how we are going to safeguard the future of them. So it's about not necessarily delaying the administering of antibiotics, but actually, as you say, when you get those results back, if this person doesn't need that specific antibiotic, then then stopping it immediately. That's how we have to think. It's It's starting quickly to actually to stop sepsis in its tracks, basically, because time is tissue from that point of view. And if we dilly and dally waiting around too long, then that could be life or limb for that particular patient. So you are better off treating it quickly and then 
reviewing and stopping if, if it's not needed and sort of downgrading if you like to to something specific and that keeps that safeguards the broad spectrum ones for later use that way when you're saying time is tissue are you or have any of your colleagues been concerned that this change to three hours could lead to some patients if nice do go down this this track as well the same the same route as the amrc that it could lead to some patients not receiving the treatment they need when they need it and do you think there might if this change happens with nice as well and that becomes the guidance across the board that there might be some concern with nurses that feel that actually I, I don't feel we should be holding off for three hours with this patient I know the news two score suggests that we should however I don't feel comfortable with that is the concern out there about that yes there certainly is concern out there about that and if you think about your patients an elderly patient will deteriorate quite quickly but a younger patient will compensate and will look fitter for longer and then all of a sudden just fall off their perch and be really quite unwell so with the extra bits that have been put in for the academy bits for the news of five or six where they're saying the patient looks extremely unwell or is actively deteriorating they may still be compensating enough that they don't look extremely unwell and you've missed that active deterioration in the soft signs until all of a sudden their news isn't five anymore it's 12. so by then they're quite sick and probably heading towards um, a much more serious outcome than if we'd actually intervened within the hour quickly earlier on. So I think that's where it's making sure that even if we are using academy guidelines and you've got that three hours, it's making sure that the oxygenation is optimised, everything else is sent and the fluids and cardiovascular system is optimised. Because actually, if you've got that senior review and that person in the bed space, hopefully we will have decisions quicker than that three hours and you won't need to wait three hours because I think that's where the issue will be is it's not my job. I'll get somebody else to prescribe once the blood results are back. It's that end of shift bit, isn't it? That's where there's a real danger of passing the job on to somebody else and that somebody else not realising the urgency. And before you know it, it'll be a mortality statistic as opposed to a patient getting better and that's what we need to be concerned about and keep in the back of our mind that we haven't really got lots of time we still want to do it as quickly as possible for each patient so it's just thinking in terms of it like that rather than oh it's all right I've got three hours and how can a nurse who's in an ED emergency department on a ward in primary care in a care home setting wherever they might be who has these concerns how can they mitigate that risk i think as a as a healthcare professional see multiple patients and we've probably all seen that patient where you've done a set of vital signs and actually it looks reasonably okay but you know this isn't the patient that you saw 10 minutes ago so it's listening to it's listening to your gut it's listening to the reaction from the carer or the relative. We're good at doing that in, in children. We listen to the parents and we take that parent parental concern, but we should take it for healthcare concern as well. So if you've got that gut feeling that, do you know what, something is really wrong with this patient. Nothing on paper is telling me that there's something wrong, but I know this isn't the patient I saw 10 minutes ago, then we should still be escalating based upon that. Because all of these tools and these guidance 
they are exactly that, they're guidance, and they can't replace that human factor, that human element in the bed space. And it's using your experience and your skills to absolutely go, something is wrong with this patient and we need to be treating them quickly and just escalating and getting that senior review. And that's something we've certainly built into our escalation policy within our trust. We treat the healthcare concern for an adult exactly the same as one of the single triggers of three. It will increase our observation frequency and it will require us to actually consider screening for sepsis because we take that as the override that we need to screen for sepsis and we would treat them in the equivalent of a news of seven or above for that screen at that point. And I think that's a really important one to go with. It's your experience and your gut. Listen to what your gut tells you. I think that's a really salient point to, to end on, actually, that nurses have got a very finely tuned gut instinct from their experiences to draw on and to rely on clinical judgment. And then if you are concerned about a specific patient to act on that. Sean, it's been really good to speak to you. Thank you so much for giving up your time to share your huge experience with us. I hope you listeners out there have found this episode valuable and that Sean's expertise and advice is really helpful to you in your daily practice. No problem. Thank you very much for inviting me. The outcome of the review of the NICE guidance is due to be published in the summer. So watch this space. Thank you for listening, everybody. Mm-hmm.